He was born in Carrickmore, and uh, in 1874, I think, the 4th of March, and uh, at the age of 16, which would be 1890, he headed off from there, I suppose a small farmer land, and he headed for Dublin, driving cattle, and he went from there to Liverpool. And my understanding, although I'm not quite clear on this, because I wasn't, when I was doing the research, I was interested in the politics of the situation rather than his personal life, but I think he got a ticket from somebody, and on that ticket he went to America, so that he reached Philadelphia at the age of 16 in 1890. I met uh, Mr. McGarrity only once, uh, shortly before his death, uh, in 1940. Uh, I was just a youngster at the time, uh, but of course in this community and uh, throughout the United States he loomed very large in Irish affairs. He was an extraordinary man, a very singular character, and uh, Sean Cronin's fine book, uh, The McGarrity Papers, uh, followed up on some clues that I had uh, turned up years ago that uh, somewhere uh, Mr. McGarrity's papers uh, were sequestered, and sure enough didn't they turn up uh, in the home of old Joe Clark in Dublin, uh, and uh, they surfaced there and permitted Sean Cronin to do his fine book. I think there's more work to be done on Joseph McGarrity. He was uh, really a singular figure. Uh, he was in many ways uh, uh, almost unique. He was that rare bird, uh, the wealthy Irish-American who was willing to uh, cast his uh, resources, his money, uh, in uh, the advancement of Irish freedom. Now, there were very few Irish-Americans of uh, social status and of great wealth who engaged themselves with the struggle for Irish nationalism. Joe McGarrity was the exception. The name of Joseph McGarrity occurs in all the history books relating to the struggle for Irish independence in this century. But it's a name which may not be too familiar to the younger generation in Ireland today. The fact that McGarrity spent most of his life in the United States may have something to do with that. But the publication by Anvil Books Tralee of the McGarrity Papers, edited by Sean Cronin in 1972, must have helped to bring the McGarrity name before a wider public. Cronin describes McGarrity as, next to John Devoy, the most important man in the Irish revolutionary movement in America. In many respects, says Cronin, his work for the home organisation was far greater than Devoy's, and he rightly points out that from the time McGarrity arrived in Philadelphia, he spent the rest of his life and several fortunes in the cause of Ireland. One of the first things he did was to join the Clan of Gael. Now, the Clan of Gael, for people who don't know much about it, is very much an American organisation. It was the remnants of Fenianism in America that came together as the family of the Irish, and John Devoy made it a massive and uh, mass organisation. And just a hundred years ago, the new departure was Devoy's policy rather than Davitt's, and although Davitt went along with it, and out of that grew the Land League. And as somebody said, John Dubois was a man uh, who worked 24 hours a day for the revolution, the Irish Revolution. And they say that about another man who worked 24 hours a day for the revolution, the Russian Revolution. That was Lenin. So in many ways, Dubois, although in exile all his life, like Lenin, who was in exile for a great deal of his life, was a totally a man dedicated to one idea, and that was the Irish Revolution. And uh, the Clan of Gael, by the 1890s, was less of an organization than it had been a decade before because it split. 
the typical fate of Irish movements. And uh, Devoy belonged very much to the minority group, but very much to the uh, group that wanted uh, straightforward dealings with Ireland on the Irish question rather than involvement in American politics. And uh, Devoy, uh, I beg your pardon, McGarrity joined the Clan Gael, which uh, for any young fellow interested in Ireland, coming from Tyrone, it would have been a natural thing to do in Philadelphia. He was a secretive man. Uh, he had a large family, uh, but uh, his enormous uh, energy and industry uh, propelled him not only into a very wide variety of real estate and distilling and other business activities, but also uh, gave him uh, a, a highly energetic career as part of the Irish nationalist circles in the United States. He was a confidant and a colleague at one time or another of old John Devoy, the arch-rebel, who for 60 years agitated from New York City uh, in behalf of Irish freedom. Uh, he was as well a confidant of uh, old Judge Goff in New York, and especially of Daniel Cohalan. Cohalan was an, uh, an excessively ambitious man who uh, hated uh, with a livid hate uh, President Woodrow Wilson, uh, because of Wilson's contempt for Irish nationalist objectives. And uh, Cohalan and uh, Joe McGarrity did not see eye to eye. And uh, they were estranged over a long period of time. And this was just one of the factions in the Irish-American support base for uh, Irish nationalism in the 1920s. But of all the men in the country, McGarrity, it appears, uh, maintained the uh, strongest course of commitment. Uh, at various times, uh, he invested uh, very great sums of money uh, in the Clan Nagail. It was some of his money that went first to uh, provide the resources for the host gun running. It was some of his money that uh, went uh, for Pierce. Uh, and uh, when Casement and De Valera stayed in this country, it was Joe McGarrity. Uh, who paid their expenses, took them into his home, uh, and uh, smoothed the way for them with government officials and police officials and uh, immigration authorities and uh, eminent figures in American life. So as a wealthy and influential man, uh, he had a, uh, I think, um, remarkable influence on Irish affairs. Uh, it was unpredictable. Who would have ever predicted that this youngster who came penniless to America would have shaped the course uh, of the new independent Irish state uh, in the early part of this century. Dr. Dennis J. Clark, director of the Fell Foundation in Philadelphia and author of a number of books on the Irish in Pennsylvania. To say that McGarrity arrived penniless in America is literally true. His railway ticket from New York to Philadelphia was bought for him by a stranger who shared a cabin with him on the boat from Liverpool. But America was then the land of opportunity and McGarrity made money quickly. My understanding is that he made it in the uh, retail or wholesale liquor business. Uh, in Philadelphia, he must have had a bar, and then he would have been selling, according to the way the laws are run here, he would probably have been selling liquor. And then he got into real estate, which they call here housing. And then, of course, he got in in the 20s, when the big boom was on, into the stock market. In fact, he had a seat in the stock market. And he was badly done in by the, his partner's son. 
uh, a young Irish American, and there was a law action about it, uh, in which majority, and I'm not saying it to try to make him a hero, uh, but he was totally flawless in the thing. In 1901, Joe McGarrity was joined in Philadelphia by another Carrick Moore man, Patrick McCartan. Together, they set about welding Clannagail into an efficient political and revolutionary force. In America, the Clannagail was always on to the Irish cause, sometimes wrong-headedly, as in the case of the Playboy and Singh and that. But almost anybody that was doing anything could get the help of the Clannagail. This went for Dr. Douglas Hyde, when Devoy, who was not a great advocate of uh, the Irish language, but he felt that it would help uh, the, uh, the, um, the cause. And it was equally true of Yeats, who <coughs> belonged to a dissident wing of the IRB in Ireland, that his National Literary Theatre, uh, that uh, Du Bois, uh, without giving any material help that I know of, but uh, McGarrity and all these were interested in all these movements in Ireland. And then McCartan decided to return to become a physician. He went to the College of Surgeons. And to my knowledge, although I wouldn't want to be uh, adamant on this, I think the man who paid for his tuition all through was McGarrity. And he did that, of course, because he wanted him to be in the IRB in Ireland. And he transferred to the IRB, in which a whole lot of young men were now moving to the fore, especially in Belfast. I think the outstanding figure would have been Bulmer Hobson. Uh, Dennis McCullough, who brought Hobson into the movement, and Sean McDermott, who uh, came a little later. And uh, with these three, and then with Tom Clark, who was in America and returned home after his being released from prison in England, uh, communication developed very much between uh, McGarrity as a person in Philadelphia and people like Hobson. There's a whole series of letters between the two. The relationship between the two men from Carrick Moore, Joe McGarrity and Dr. Patrick McCartan, was a close one. And in fact, much of what we know about McGarrity is to be found in the McCartan documents, some of which have been edited by Professor F.X. Martin in publications like the Clower Record. Some information about McGarrity's early years in Tyrone may be obtained in a fragment of unpublished autobiography, now in the possession of his daughter, the well-known artist, Mary McGarrity Shore of Gloucester, Massachusetts. There are some memoirs he, he began before he died. And isn't that somewhere I think he mentioned his early life on arriving in Philadelphia? Has that been published? No. Uh, the man, I have the manuscript, and it's up until the time he arrived in Philadelphia. McGarrity mentions in his memoirs that he was the second youngest of eight children born to John and Catherine McGarrity, formerly Begley, on the farm near Carrick Moor. He never forgot his early life there, and he often spoke of it to his children. He did often talk about it. I remember it, you know, I felt as if I knew it. And uh, he promised us a trip back when we grew up, and eventually I got there by myself. Uh, and you have photos, he, in fact, of your father in an open car there in Dungannon yes. around 1920, was it 20-something? Oh, no, it was earlier than that. That was when his father was alive. His father died around the turn of the century. That's when my grandmother was brought to this country. But uh, my father was back a number of times, as you know, and he held on to the, to the house and the property, and the house was rebuilt 
and eventually the house was sold to my younger sister, I believe, in Dublin. He, w he wished it to be a Gaelic school someday. But it, it still stands. But it anyhow. wasn't, uh, I don't know exactly what happened. I think my Aunt Annie had it, and then she left it to Anne. So that's the story. McGarrity's idea of turning his ancestral home into a Gaelic school was just one manifestation of his interest in the Irish revival movement. In 1909, when it looked as if the National University of Ireland would not make Irish an essential subject for matriculation, McGarrity wired £100 of his own money to help the Gaelic League campaign in Dublin. Again, in early 1914, when Posig Pierce went to America on a fundraising tour for St Andrews College, McGarrity, prompted by his close friend Bulmer Hobson of the Supreme Council of the IRB, was his principal sponsor and his first financial backer. I did not grasp at the time the real importance of St. Enders, he admitted many years later. The uppermost thought in my mind was the growth and equipment of the volunteers, he said. And in fact, as chairman of a fundraising committee, it was he who was mainly responsible for the $50,000 it sent to Ireland and for persuading Clannagrail to send all the money in his treasury for the same purpose. After the founding of the volunteers, Pierce was not a member of the IRB, although he was writing for Irish Freedom, and uh, he had founded St. Enders, and we all know the effect of that work. But by the end of 1913, he wanted to come to America because the Irish always think you can raise money in America. Well, there's a great delusion about that to some extent if you have the right friends in America, and they could, a man certainly like Du Bois and McGarrity, it would be helpful. And uh, Pierce became a member of the IRB before the tour. He was sworn in by Hobson, and he came here in... Uh, January or February of 1914, and he wanted to give a series of lectures so as to raise money for St. Enders. And he met McGarrity at Du Bois' uh, Gaelic American office in William Street in New York, and Bulmer Hobson was there too with a letter from Roger Casement. And uh, Pierce spoke here at a number of meetings. He spoke at a meeting of the Brooklyn Academy of Music, which was attended by 3,000 but I wouldn't want to leave you with the illusion that they came to hear Pierce. In fact, not. He would be unknown. They came to hear the governor of New York, who was the first Irish-American elected to that office. And uh, he, uh, Pierce, was sort of as a last-minute thought put in by Du Bois or somebody to speak. And he spoke there, and he spoke at Emmett commemorations, and he went to Philadelphia, and he interested McGarrity very much in St. Enders. Uh, Parik Cullum has described McGarrity as a gallow glass of a man. And uh, from what I have seen of pictures, that would be it. He was a fierce-looking man in the best sense of the term, uh, with uh, what one would think of as piercing dark eyes and moustaches and so on. And once he became interested uh, in a subject, um, he uh, really uh, pushed it. And he uh, raised quite a lot of money for St. Enders, and he saved it from the bearers. McGarrity has himself described how Pierce relaxed in his house in Philadelphia, playing with the children, and how in more serious moments Pierce, Bulmer Hobson and himself discussed events in Ireland, right through to daybreak. The hours seemed to fly so swiftly, wrote McGarrity, the prospect of Ireland again standing in arms in defence of our ancient rights, the prospect of help from a great power, the general awakening that was taking place in Ireland seemed to make us forget everything else for the time, and think only of the fight and prospect.
I often again get the feeling uh, that, of course, there would have been, it seems to me, no 1916 if it weren't for a number of factors. But one of the factors is that there was no Clannagale, that the Clannagale was very much the, uh, well, with Du Bois' prestige and his authority and his influence and his name, he was the link with uh, Germany. And McGarrity was always right there at uh, Du Bois' right hand. And uh, again, the whole question of casement, McGarrity, uh, casement stayed at McGarrity's house, and uh, I am in correspondence with McGarrity's youngest daughter, who's an artist, as you know, in uh, Gloucester, Massachusetts, and she was telling me she is the little girl that uh, sat on Pierce's knee, and he would uh, sing her various rhymes. McGarrity had uh, written about that, although I'm not sure that he had mentioned the name of his daughter. Uh, which of them it was. Well, she was the one. As Mary McGarrity Shaw was only two years of age in 1914, naturally she doesn't remember being sung to by Podrick Pierce. In fact, she was too young to remember most of the famous people who visited or stayed in the McGarrity home in those years. Her general recollection is of her father travelling a lot, bringing home a different Irishman each time he went away, and holding long discussions in the Smokefield Library. It's hazy, but I do remember these men, it seemed that they were always handsome. <laughs> <laughs> I do remember the man with the beard, and that must have been Roger Casement, but very, you know, very hazy. And I remember well, though, after that, people like Harry Boland and was it Liam Mellows and Larry Pedler and Sean Noonan. And you don't remember De Valera, do you? Oh, very well, very well. What yes. do you remember about he him now? He stayed with us for two weeks, and I was in boarding school at that time. My sister and I, Catherine, uh, and when we came home in the holidays, he played with us like a, a pal. We'd get under the t- table, and he'd have all these little children around entertaining him. I guess he missed his own children at that time. The story of De Valera's arrival in New York in June 1919 is well known. How he travelled as a stowaway with a spare suit in which he hoped to go ashore, but which had in fact been gnawed by rats on the voyage and was unwearable. As with so many others concerned with the Irish cause, Joe McGarrity once again came to the rescue, supplied him with an outfit more in keeping with his position as President of the New Irish Republic, and eventually brought him to the big house on Chestnut Street, Philadelphia. My father met him when he got off the boat, and I know he bought him new clothes, and... uh and he stayed oh, in the house then? He did for stay in the, He did, I think, uh, a week or two. I don't know. It's, it's in one of the books. He was there more than once, so he was there twice. My father was very private, you know, and he didn't, he didn't talk to us about it at all. I mean, I knew these were nice men. I didn't know just who they were. So uh, it was the same about the business end of it, raising the money. I do remember once going to the Academy of Music where there was big, I forget who was there, but my father did speak on the stage. I guess it was part of the bomb drive. We went there. He took a few of us with mother. Did you remember Devoy at all, who of course was very old even then? I didn't. I remember Luke Dillon. Oh yes, the the dynamiter. Luke Mm. Dillon often would come to their house and visit. Especially at Christmas time, I remember him visiting and us visiting him. And uh, Harry McCarney was another close mm-hmm. friend. 
Joseph McGarry had a succession of very large houses for uh, his uh, big family in West Philadelphia, west of the University of Pennsylvania, uh, and uh, as a man with extensive real estate holdings, uh, he seemed to have changed uh, the family's residence three or four times uh, during uh, the time the youngsters were growing up. And uh, that house, uh, or whatever house he was in, was always open uh, to uh, people who were uh, on the run uh, from uh, Ireland or who had come to Ireland, men like uh, Dr. Patrick McCartan and uh, many of the others who came here uh, to uh, work on behalf of the nationalist endeavors of Sinn Féin. Mother was born in Philadelphia, and her name was Catherine Hines McGarrity. And she was an only child. She was very attractive and good company. And uh, How did she feel about being married to this wild Tyrone man who was so involved in the cause of Irish freedom? Well, I don't remember, you know. I just took it all for granted. Uh, it seemed to be just our life. I never heard anything for or against. She was very busy because she eventually had nine children, and she was also uh, very stylish. She was a small woman, and very, very pretty woman. My father was a very handsome man, I always thought. Apparently, uh, his family certainly never wanted for anything at all. Uh, he was typically generous with them, as he was with uh, everybody that he encountered. His generosity really was proverbial in uh, the Philadelphia community, uh, especially among the Irish uh, here. And uh, I think that his uh, wife was a much more retiring person than he was. Uh, and uh, his children seem to uh, have missed much of Joe McGarrity because his life went by very rapidly. It was packed with activity. And uh, he was constantly... Uh, in conversation with uh, dozens of people uh, daily uh, about these affairs uh, of business and also this whole career of nationalist agitation that he pursued. When Casement was under sentence of death, it was McGarrity that uh, attempted to reach um, Wilson, the president, for whom he had no love, but Wilson's secretary, press secretary, the Jody Powell of those days was uh, a man named Joe Tumulty, an Irish-American from Jersey City. And McGarrity was <clears throat> in some way able to reach the White House, and the White House did send word uh, to, in an attempt to save Casement's life, however half-hearted, and uh, that it didn't succeed. I say half-hearted because Wilson, of course, was very strongly pro-British, pro-Allied cause, and uh, he could hardly, um, <coughs> he was a southerner, and he was fairly anti-Irish politician. And in fact, there were some pretty vicious attacks on McGarrity, weren't there, because yes. of what they alleged was his pro-German attitude. That is correct. Well, uh, it struck me, though, in reading through the correspondence uh, of McGarrity that he was strongly pro-German in 1917-18. There was one other feature at that time America is a country that when things begin to move a certain direction, there isn't much time, or there wasn't then, I don't know about today, for dissidents, people who wouldn't go along with that particular view. And when America entered the war, 
The Irish were out there cheering, even though yesterday they might have said, well, America shouldn't be in England's war. And this even extended to the Clanagale, and it extended high up, certainly not to Du Bois, but Du Bois was an old enough dog to know when to stay silent. Well, the one man who did not stay silent through it all was McGarrity. He <coughs> kept giving speeches. He kept uh, making declarations that one should... Uh, uh, that the Irish cause was the important cause, that if there was to be self-determination and so on. And there was something else that now that comes to mind that I could talk about, and I think it will be talked about for the first time. When I was going through McGarrity's papers, and I have it in the book I wrote, there was a meeting uh, in uh, New York uh, at the Murray Hill Hotel, I think it was, uh, of the Revolutionary Directorate about August or September of 1916. They had wanted to get in touch with Germany to have a second rising. Uh, this is not very widely known. In fact, I have seen no historians refer to it at all. But the way Du Bois looked at 1916, Du Bois was an extremely practical man. There was absolutely nothing romantic about him. And the idea of poets dying or being executed didn't appeal all that much to him. He considered the whole thing was a botched affair. And he felt, though, that the Germans now had an opportunity that there were people in Ireland prepared to fight, and that if the Germans were really serious about striking at Britain, that they should land troops in Ireland, and there would be a second rising. And he had plans for a second rising. I stated this in the book because I came across it in McGarrity's papers, but I had no further information. I was in the British uh, Public Record Office uh, in connection with something else last February, just two months ago. And uh, I was going through the files there. And lo and behold, I came across something. These files have only been released in the past couple of years. That the British intelligence sent word to the uh, Dublin Castle saying that they had information from the highest authority. I forget the phrase that was used. Uh, that um, there was plans for a second rising in Ireland. And the man who was in charge of military intelligence in Ireland was a Major Ivor Price, a former leading man of the RIC. And he and other intelligence people said that this was not possible, that Sinn Féin didn't exist, the volunteers were totally scattered and so on, so forth, and that this information, generally speaking, couldn't be correct. But uh, as I know, the information was, was correct. But now to unravel this mystery, I don't have the answer to the mystery. Uh, number one, the dates in the Dublin Castle documentation, the War Office files, are pre the date of the meeting in New York. This could indicate a couple of things. That Devoy on his own, before the meeting in New York, had been in touch with the Germans. And we do know that the, that the British had broken the German code. And that, that's one possible way by which the British must have been aware of this. The other way would be that there was a British agent working in the Clannagale. And of course, that wouldn't be impossible since there was the man who gave evidence against Parnell, had been 25 years in the Clannagale and the Secret Service. But it's unlikely because of the dates. At any rate, there's the mystery. In March 1918, while the First World War still raged, Joe McGarrity founded a weekly newspaper in Philadelphia called the Irish Press, 
was Dr. Patrick McCartan as editor. It met with opposition from Devoy, who feared the competition with his own Gaelic-American, and equally there was opposition from the American authorities. There is no decent history of Irish journalism in this country, but what happened in the 1920s was that the United States government, under British pressure, um, banned from the mails our two leading Irish-American papers, the Irish World and the Gaelic-American, both published in New York. The Gaelic-American, of course, was put out by the redoubtable John Devoy, who had begun his activities as a Fenian in the 1860s. Uh, McGarrity, seeing this, uh, instituted his own press, called the Irish Press, here in Philadelphia, backed it to the tune of, I'd say, perhaps uh, four or five thousand pounds uh, per uh, weekly issue uh, out of his own pocket, uh, and uh, provided a vehicle whereby the American public could read about the atrocities that were taking place uh, in Ireland at the time. Uh, and uh, that was the only vehicle uh, through which many of the reports uh, of the suffering of the Irish people could be made available to American readers uh, at that time. In spite of its being banned from the United States mails, like the other Irish-American papers, after only eight issues, the Irish press managed to keep going for a number of years, at a cost to McGarrity, finally, of some $200,000 of his own money. It was a most effective propaganda machine, and it also played a big part in the bond drive started in 1919 for the newly proclaimed Irish Republic. McGarrity himself was, of course, the principal organiser of the bond appeal in America. These Irish freedom bonds, as they were um, colloquially known at the time, uh, were put on sale, and McGarrity uh, bought the first uh, great batch of those for almost a million dollars of his personal funds. In addition to that, he organized the bond drive throughout the country. So just as Israel was able to float uh, a loan uh, in the uh, late 1940s uh, by very diligent uh, work in one city after another, Joe McGarrity headed that kind of campaign to provide uh, fiscal resources for the uh, new republic, uh, the new uh, free state. He reorganized the Clan of Gale and set up a rival front organization, the Friends of the Irish Republic, and he was the man who advised uh, de Valera against everybody else's judgment. He obviously had a very shrewd financial brain to float the bonds here. It was suggested by Judge Cahalan, who was both, uh, well, he was a lawyer, of course, and a politician, that to float bonds under America's laws, you could be, uh, you, you, the movement could be held liable and you, you could involve yourself in endless litigation. McGarrity proved that this was not so. The bonds were a success. And uh, in fact, the United Jewish Appeal, Israel, bonds for Israel, that began to develop in the late 1940s and 50s, arise largely out of this experience that McGarrity was the man who in fact planned it. Mm. And if we could have one little diversion on that, uh, uh, President John F. Kennedy's grandfather bought uh, number six of these Republic bonds, mm. uh, Honey Fitz, the mayor of Boston. And I think too it was McGarrity who suggested that they ask for, was it 50 million, don't ask for five, uh, ask for 50. He thought big. Yes. And when you were saying about making his money, he made three fortunes, as far as I can estimate, uh, losing each one, 
uh, except not the final one. And I have no idea, but for example, McGarity almost financed by himself the 1924 Sinn Féin uh, election campaign. He raised the money. He must have raised uh, most of the money through the, uh, th that financed the IRA during the Civil War. Uh, McGarity, up to the late 1920s, it was McGarity's activities that financed uh, the, the entire, far more than Du Bois, who was sort of a strategist at the top, from the beginning of the volunteers. McGarity is the man who raised the money and got the money sent to Ireland to finance the entire thing. McGarity also played a big part in the efforts made after World War I to have Ireland's case for self-determination brought before the peace conference. When President Wilson travelled there by ship from New York, McGarity organised a delegation of leading Irish Americans, including very influential clergy, to approach Wilson and to raise the Irish question. Now, no matter what his sympathies were, it couldn't be said that he was not aware of the Irish question. So that much was a plus. And then there was a senator from Massachusetts named Walsh and others. And they were, uh, McGarity uh, was one of the forces that organized them as a um, commission on Ireland. And they were sent to Ireland during the Black and Tan period to report on what was happening. And we know from Tom Jones's diaries, the Whitehall diaries, that Lloyd George was very concerned with American reaction to the Irish situation. Britain was then a very powerful country, but nevertheless, what was happening in America was important. And McGarity was the man who also organized, through a Dr. Maloney, uh, hearings, informal hearings in Washington, a citizens committee of outstanding citizens, people whose name, if you picked up the paper then, you would recognize. And he worked with socialists and various people whose, whose politics he couldn't possibly agree. And they brought witnesses out from Ireland, including Terence McSweeney's widow, Muriel, Mary McSweeney, and various other people, and XRIC people, or people who had resigned. And they gave evidence about the burning of Balbriggan, shootings and so forth, and a report was made. And all of this was very important. And uh, McGarity is a man who sort of, he was always aware of the importance of propaganda in the best sense, that is, making people aware of a problem. With McGarity's complete commitment to the ideal of a 32-county Irish Republic and his equal commitment to the use of force to obtain it, it was inevitable from 1922 onwards that many of his friends in Ireland should part company with him politically. His strong personal regard for de Valera, however, was to prolong that particular friendship longer than most. It was admiration at first sight, if I may put it that way. And uh, when de Valera came to America, McGarity was the man who advised him on American politics and actually advised him very strongly in the use of the term president because it meant a great deal in this country. De Valera was president of Don Aaron and it would not have been considered that significant in Ireland. But from the time he came to America, McGarity insisted he was President De Valera, and that's how he became known. And when the, after the Cuban uh, interview, in which De Valera made one of the very few errors in his life, and he, political life, I mean errors as a politician. I don't want to get into mm. whether he made other kinds of errors, but he was, uh, of course, everybody would agree, a very capable political tactician. But he was only starting out in politics then. 
And uh, as everybody knows now, because of what has happened in Cuba with the Cuban Revolution, Cuba, in effect, was a satellite of the United States. America could intervene in Cuban politics by a law that was known as the Platt Amendment. And de Valera, in an interview with the Westminster Gazette, when the question of Brit Britain's defense rose, said, why not have an agreement like the United States has with Cuba? And, of course, men like uh, Cahalan, Judge Cahalan, and John Du Bois uh, hit the ceiling with that. Uh, they had disliked de Valera anyway because, well, they couldn't control him, I think. That may have been one reason. And uh, whatever about that, with this interview, the break occurred. Well, the man who saved de Valera from being sent back from America in disgrace was McGarrity. There was a meeting of Irish-American leaders summoned. These were all very powerful people in the politics of America. And what they would have possibly recommended is that the man be sent home uh, uh, because they had no confidence in him. McGarrity took control of that meeting, turned it around, and uh, defeated and set to flight men like Devoy and Cahalan, Judge Cahalan, men who knew American politics and Devoy's massive prestige. McGarrity's break with De Valera began with the founding of Fianna Fáil and became final when De Valerian government cracked down on the IRA. And McGarrity on his side more or less masterminded the Sean Russell bombing campaign against Britain in the late 30s. The important men of the IRA at that time were Moss Toomey, Sean McBride, and others. And uh, they did meet with de Valera on the question of the future at McGarrity's urging. McGarrity felt, and again one has to think of him as rather cold-blooded in these matters, that the question of Irish independence, both he and de Valera agreed, were not, was not solved, certainly while Tyrone, the Union Jack flew over Tyrone, which was McGarrity's home county, and de Valera agreed with him there. De Valera felt, however, that coercion could not be used in the question of partition, that it was a very different situation to the old one, so they disagreed on that. But McGarrity felt that the IRA could do things that de Valera could not do. De Valera said no, that a government must take responsibility for its actions. So they had an ideological dispute or a tactical dispute for a number of years before they split completely. McGarrity was also a conservative, politically, in the American sense, I suppose, or in the sense that he was no radical. And the IRA in those years was quite radical in its social policies. And uh, with the defeat of Republican Congress in 1934, the expulsion of uh, most of the people who were connected with it, McGarrity felt that the IRA should return to a physical force policy like the IRB or the Dynamiters. He got no support within the IRA for that except from one person, and that was Sean Russell, who was the Quartermaster General. McGarrity brought him to America on a number of occasions, and McGarrity, in fact, drafted the type of plan strategically, not detailed tactical things, of a bombing campaign in England along the lines of the Clannagale dynamite campaigns of the 1880s. As a curtain raiser, in his view, to a guerrilla war in the six counties, such as had taken place in all of Ireland, as he felt, between 1919 and 1921. He was not aware, as most exiles are not aware, uh, that the climate politically had changed totally. And one of his sayings was that the only thing England really feared in Ireland was a fanatical thing, 
that reason they could always deal with. He had great admiration for Parnell, who he felt was able to use all of these various forces on England. And he felt that de Valera didn't. So he split uh, completely with de Valera in 1936 when de Valera banned the IRA. And I think there was only one message exchanged after that, and that was when de Valera's son was killed in the Phoenix Park. And he died, of course, in 1940. Joseph McGarrity, then, was a man of contradictions, extreme in many of his political views, but generous beyond measure to any cause he believed in, a great lover of books and of literature, and the author of three books of poetry. Ireland and Irish America still benefit from his book collection. He had a very extensive library from the time I can first remember, and he kept growing. It was a very large room, and practically all of the books were either on or about Ireland, or Irish, or many in Gaelic, many rare books. And you know, of course, that that library, or the remains of it, are now in Villanova College, outside of Philadelphia. And for a final word on this remarkable Tyrone man, Dr. Dennis J. Clark of Philadelphia. I believe that it is fashionable, at least in some circles today, in Ireland, uh, to uh, regard men like Pierce and McGarrity and uh, Dermot, uh, McDermott and so forth uh, as extreme figures. Uh, I've even uh, had people uh, try to tell me that they were mentally unbalanced personalities. I think that uh, this is very wide of the mark. It's easy today to sit in the Port Marmot Golf Club or some other uh, place of ease and, uh, and leisure and to regard these men who emerged from an Ireland that was stricken with pathology that was a place of constant turmoil and distress and repression uh, to regard these men uh, as uh, aberrations, as it were. But Joe McGarrity was very much a true product of the Tyrone of his times. Uh, he inherited his family's uh, afflictions, uh, and he understood the afflictions of his people. And it was men like McGarrity, through the exercise of their relentless will, who accomplished the uh, nationalist objectives that have conferred upon people the benefits they enjoy today.